will, uh, grab your Bibles or something that has God's Word on it and head over to Psalm 79 this morning. Uh, now, if you remember last week, uh, I told you, what, what was the most common category of Psalms? You remember? Lament. That's right. That's good. You can remember something. Seven days, good. Lament. Uh, well, guess what today's category is today? A lament. That's right. Uh, they're not all laments, but we're doing two in a row. Uh, this one is a little different than last week. Last week, it was a, an individual lament, right? Uh, and this week, it is a community lament. It's a little different. It's a corporate lament, right? <clears throat> if you've got it in front of you, we see there in verse 9, right? He doesn't pray, help me, O God. He prays, help us, O God. It's also what's called an imprecatory psalm, right? This is the one people make jokes about. Uh, it's because it's this, it's this prayer that calls down God's judgment, his calamity, his destruction on, on an enemy. This is the kind of prayer, right, that we, we want to pray for all of our enemies. We want to pray it for KU down the street, and we want to pray it for the Yankees and Kathy and HR, who's always bothering you, and your mother-in-law, and, you know, anyone you might want to call an, an enemy, right? Or, or more seriously, you might want to do this on, uh, you know, political adversaries or North Korea or, or something of that nature. And, and we're going to discuss a, a little bit later in the sermon uh, whether that's an appropriate way for us to pray as Christians or not. Uh, but for now... Let's, let's get to this. Now, also before we read, the author is a, a man named Asaph. Uh, Asaph is a, a Levite. He's a priest. Uh, he's also a musician who, among uh, a few others, were put in charge or, or tasked with leading musical worship in the temple. Uh, he wrote 12, or at least 12 that we know for sure, 12 of the Psalms, uh, which is a pretty good career for him, right? Uh, 12 of them are published here forever. Um, and a little bit more background about this psalm, so it makes sense to you, is that this psalm describes the, the aftermath of, of a massive, horrible disaster that has come upon Israel, and particularly Jerusalem, which is where he's seeing it from, his eyesight. Uh, and, and most likely, this is when King Nebuchadnezzar, right, of Babylon, violently invades Jerusalem in 587 B.C. and just destroys everything and everyone almost, um, so, so that's the situation. As you read this, you can begin to picture that environment. Uh, but let's read. Uh, Psalm 79, beginning in verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by the, those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our formal iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. 
according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts that, with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, by grace through faith in Jesus, we are your people. And though we have lived a comfortable life as Christians in our generation and in this nation, we have tasted suffering. What it is like to be marginalized and at times to be villainized by a culture that steadily grows more apathetic to you, more antagonistic to your people. And so we ask you to teach us to lament. Teach us in Psalm 79 this morning to cry out to you, to trust you, to be faithful to you. Amen. Now I want to begin with a a quote from Paul Tripp here. He says, Being in a covenantal relationship with the Lord does not mean that I will escape the difficulties of life in a fallen world. As difficult as it is to accept, you are still here because this is where your all-wise, all-loving Heavenly Father wants you to be. That was true for Israel on this day in 587 BC. That is true for you today as well. No matter what the situations in your life look like, that is true for you. And so in these first four verses here, we see Asaph Uh, He is walking kind of through, visually as he writes, walking us through this destruction of Jerusalem. And the unspoken question that goes over all of this is, is God, do you you see what they've done to us? Can you see what they have done to your people? And do you even care? Now, keep in mind, this this isn't just any nation out there, right? This is Israel, who who were the chosen covenant people of, of God. Now, listen, I... I love America. I do. I love it almost as much as I love Texas. Not as much, but somewhere close to that. And, and today is Independence Day. You know that because you heard everything blowing up last night, right? Uh, you know today is a day that, that, that as Americans we celebrate by, by blowing up fireworks that we purchased from China. Um, and, and we like to be thankful for our nation and, and for all those who have fought for our freedoms in this nation. And I hope you go do that later, right? Don't do it outside my window after 10 o'clock, but I hope you go and you celebrate today uh, our independence. But but as a Christian, I also need you to know this, that America is not modern-day Israel. We are not God's chosen people. As Christians, we are God's chosen people, but not as a nation, right? God has made no covenant with the United States. And and, and even amongst that, even, even with that, if you remember, those of you that are old enough, right, even we were asking these sort of questions after Islamic terrorists crashed planes into New York City and the Pentagon 20 years ago. It's hard to believe it was 20 years ago, right? But those were the questions, if you remember, God, do, do you see what they've done to us? Do you even care? Among other questions. So can you picture this destruction in Jerusalem that's going on? It's massive, right? Verse 1, the nations have come into your inheritance, meaning simply they've invaded your land, God, the land that you gave us as your people. 
That's what they've come into. And not only that, but these people, these pagan, literally pagan people have defiled your temple. That that ever-present visual reminder that their God was majestic, that their God was powerful. And and now they look at it, and there it is, just stones, rubble. And verse 2 paints this picture of, of, of the bodies of men and women and children just lying lifeless across the city as scavenger birds and wild beasts eat at their flesh. It's gruesome. It's exactly as, as Jeremiah prophesied it would be. Even Jeremiah 7.33, you can see that if you want. Uh, in verse 4, we, we see the surrounding nations now taunt them and mock them, right? If, if your God cares about you, if he's powerful, if he's as great as you say that he is, then why did this happen to you? Look at your life. Your God must be pathetic. The enemies of God are always mockers. You remember when our Lord hung upon the cross, there were some who mockingly asked, you know, if, if, if you're the son of God, save yourself and come on down from that cross. They mocked when they see that. Israel is, is sorrowful here and they're crying out to God because they are God's people and they know that, right? They are supposed to be this example to the nations showing how great, how amazing, how powerful and good Yahweh is, and, and yet, here they are. We'll couple you on the very back, grab a few chairs out of that back door right there, right? They, these people are supposed to be showing this, this almost advertisement, right? This is how great our God is, how, how great Yahweh is, and, and yet here they are. But, but even in these first few verses here, as, as they're recounting this destruction, pay attention here, do you, do you see the hope? Do you see the hope is, right? Now, if you're one of those people that write in your Bibles, and I think everyone should be one of those people, uh, write all over it. Make notes, underline things, you know, live in that text. Uh, If you're one of those people, you're going to want to underline the the four instances of your that you see in those first two verses, right? They, They have come into your inheritance. This is speaking to God. They have defiled your holy temple, given the bodies of your servants to the bird, given the the flesh of your faithful to the beast, right? Your, your, your. And the point of this? Well, the point is they are devastated, and yet here they are going to the Lord. And they are acknowledging that they themselves and, and, and everything else belongs to God. They're saying, Lord, look what they have done to us. They, they have ultimately done it to you, Lord, because we are yours. We, we see something similar happen in the book of Acts. If you remember, Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul, is persecuting Christians before that. And, and um, as our resurrected Lord speaks to him, he, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he's been persecuting Christians, right? Not, not Jesus himself. And yet, that association, if you persecute my people, you persecute me, right? That's the way this always goes. And, and so we see this, this close association that God has between him and his covenant people. So then, um, we're going to move on to this next section, five for seven. Any, any of you remember that viral video, David After Dennis? Anyone? Really? Okay, well, one person back there. All right, it was 12 years ago, so maybe that's why you don't remember. You're short memories, short term. Anyway, it's a seven-year-old boy. He's been to the dentist. He's, he's had an, uh, anesthesia, I think is how you pronounce that word, but probably not. Uh, and he's feeling confused from it, and his dad's asking him these questions, and he says all this crazy stuff, and it's just funny stuff. But, but then suddenly he asks his dad, like this, what his situation really hits him, and he says, Dad, 
why is this happening to me? To, to which his dad comforting says, it's okay, bud, it's, it's just from the medicine. And, and then David, still with, the, with concern in his tone, asks, is this going to be forever? And it's just this paranoia that I might never be normal again. This might be reality for the rest of my life, right? Now, on a much grander scale, that's the question you see there in verse 5. Look at it when he says, how long, O Yahweh, will you be angry at us forever? And, and, and so what they are asking is, how long are we going to continue to suffer what they're not asking, though, right, and this is important, what they're not asking is, why are we suffering, God? Why did this happen? They're not asking that because they already know why this has happened. In, in verse 5, when, when they ask, right, the second half of verse 5, will your jealousy burn like fire? That, that's a question here. This is a reference to this analogy that we see all over the Old Testament, right? When God, through the prophets, has, has used to just paint this picture of the relationship between himself and, and his covenant people, right? It's this picture of marriage, a picture of a, a husband and a wife, and, and God is jealous, right? Not making false accusations of jealousy like, like as humans we can do, but, but he is jealous because his bride, his people, have absolutely been unfaithful to them. C commandment number one, Exodus 23, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. But Israel did. They worshipped other gods. They, they have worshipped false gods, believing in their hearts that these gods are real gods and somehow worthy of their worship. And, and so here they are, as they're saying, you know, that God is jealous. They're, they're confessing, Lord, we have been unfaithful. We've been unfaithful. And, and they know that while the devastation has, has come at the hands of another nation, they also know that it's God who has brought it, and, and he's done it because of their sin and their idolatry. And so then in verse 6, right, they ask God, you know, they're saying, you know what, we, we know that, we confess it, we're, we, we're coming back to you, we want to be faithful, all that is built into this. And they're saying here, you know what, and instead of continued discipline on us, will you please now put out your, your anger, or pour out your anger on Babylon? Will you pour it out on the people that attacked your covenant people? And on the other nations who do not know you, or on the other nations who do not call upon your name? This is... This is one of those psalms that, that makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable. And, and if we're honest at the beginning, there, it, there's good reason why it makes some Christians uncomfortable. Because if we look to the New Testament, right, we see Jesus our Lord teaches us in Matthew 5, saying, I, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus teaches often that we are to forgive others. And we should. But, but there's also a, a place to pray for justice, to pray for, for God to punish evil. Now, we, we know that Jesus will return. He's going to come back. He's going to judge in, in all righteousness that justice will be done absolutely perfect. Uh, but right now, we are, we are living in an, an era, right, where, where, where this time of history, a, a time of grace, if you will, where, where, yes, we can defend ourselves if we need to, absolutely. But we're not to pull out the sword, the gun, whatever else, right, and execute the enemies of God just because they are the enemies of God. We, we have very different instructions in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples of those very people who are the enemies of God. We're to call people who mock God to put their faith in God. We're, we're to warn people that either the justice of God has been poured out upon Jesus on your behalf at the cross, or the wrath of God will be poured out on them for all of eternity. Furthermore, let us never forget the compassion that Jesus has shown us, truly, shown us in the gospel. When, when we ourselves 
we're still enemies of the Lord. He loved us and sought us. And the grace that we still receive when we sin, as we do, when we repent, as we do. And so then the question still lingers, though. Can we as Christians pray this way? Sometimes, in situations. It'd be right to ask God in prayer to defend the gospel, to protect his church, to smite out evil, to bring down nations that propagate false gods and do evil deeds. But we're never to pray this way against our personal enemies, right? Not to, we're not to do that for Kathy and HR or whatever it might be. Instead, Christian, you are to maintain a spirit of grace even towards those who hate you, even towards those who persecute you. As Richard Phillips says beautifully, he says, Christians, above all others, ought to have compassion on those in the grip of, in the grip of sin, even when sin is committed against us. Always remembering God teaches us in Romans 12, 21 that we are to overcome evil with good. Now, if you're wondering about all this and what happens after this, this passage, right? God does indeed answer the prayer uh, of Israel. He does it in a, a number of ways in a number of different stages. Maybe, maybe you've already noticed, right? At the most recent World Cup, Babylon did not field a team in that. That's because they don't have a nation. They haven't for a very, very, very long time. Um, right? So he answers in that way. And we'll see how he answers in another way in a little bit. Um, so, so one way to keep our resentment against the ungodly in check is for us to keep our own sinfulness clearly in mind. Meaning that we don't become self-righteous and just think, oh, I, I don't sin anymore, right? Asaph in this psalm models that for us when he acknowledges their iniquities, their sin. I mean, can, can you hear the confession and the plea for mercy and the plea for forgiveness in those words of, of verse 8 where, where it says, look at it, verse 8 in front of you, it says, do not remember against us our formal iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Those of you who were here for it, uh, back when we were in Luke 18 a while back, uh, when Jesus observes there's, there's two people praying, right, and they're in the temple, the rebuilt temple, um, and, and there's a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they're praying to God, and, and the Pharisee prays in self-righteousness, and he says, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or, or like this tax collector right here. And while the tax collector himself simply prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you remember, Jesus commended the, the, uh, or condemned the prayer uh, of the Pharisee, the self-righteous one, and he commended the one uh, of, the, of the tax collector that was asking for simple mercy. Listen, all of our prayers all of our prayers should be filled with confession and repentance, not, not just in the liturgy, not just corporately, but, but even on our own prayers, simply because God is holy, holy. And, and the more aware we are of God's holiness, the more aware we become of, of our own unholiness, our own, un, you know, our own, sin, our own sinfulness. In verse, verses 9 and 10, they, they ask God to help them for the glory of his name. See, they know, they know what we know. They know that God has said about himself in Isaiah 42, verse 8. He says, I am the Lord, and that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. When Jesus later teaches his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, right? What's the first petition? We prayed it earlier. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed 
be thy name. That's, that's a prayer for God's name to be revered, to be glorified. Right? That's where it even begins. Now let me, let me ask you a question. Would your day-to-day life be lived any different this week if God's glory was truly your highest priority in your life? Would it? I mean, moment by moment, if you thought, is this about my, my freedoms, my rights? Is this about whatever I enjoy? Is this about making my life easier? Is this about the, the glory of God? And maybe, maybe we need a better job of just internally, you could do it audibly, but that would be weird. But internally asking ourselves more often, you know, how can I glorify God in this moment? Good moments, frustrating moments, whatever it might be, how can I glorify God in this moment? Look at verse 9 here. There, there's something interesting here. When, when he says, deliver us and atone for our sins, here's, here's what's interesting. To atone for sins, as they as understood in the Old Testament, right, uh, it, is to make a payment for them. And the way that, that, that this worked was that the priests would, would take an animal and sacrifice it in the temple, <clears throat> and that's the payment for, for their sins, particularly on the Day of Atonement. Only, how's the temple looking at this moment when he's writing this? Like, we're going to go up to the temple and sacrifice. Oh, right, it's just a bunch of rocks. It's just rubble. That's not so good. And and so how could atonement for sin be made for them? Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what Asaph thought when he's writing this. He has something in mind. Uh, You know, maybe maybe it's this plea that the temple be rebuilt so then we can make atonement for it. I don't know. But what I do know is that while the temple was rebuilt, it was was torn down again in 70 AD and never built again, right? It's just that wailing wall today if you were to go see it. And, And still, God does answer this prayer in a way that is far more spectacular than Asaph or anyone else could have imagined. God God makes atonement for his people in a way that did not require a temple at all, in a way that didn't require animals, in a way that is forever and perfectly satisfying the payment necessary. What what, what a blessing it is for us to study the Old Testament, to study these Psalms through the lens of the New Testament, because we, we can look at this and we know that God atones for his people by sending his son, Jesus, to be a perfect sinless sacrifice, a final sacrifice, a final sacrifice because he was the sufficient sacrifice for all who place their faith in Jesus. And so then in in verse 10, uh, there's also something interesting here I want to show you. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Right? And you see, by being the God of Israel, there's kind of this connection piece going on, but by being the God of Israel, that's whose God he he has chosen to be, uh, God's reputation is tied to the well-being of Israel the way that they look at that. But at the same time, the well-being of Israel is, is tied to their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness, right? So, so all that they're suffering at this point is because of their unfaithfulness, which makes God look bad to the neighboring, neighboring countries. So when the nations look at the destruction of Israel with their, their polytheistic worldview, they think the God of Israel is pathetic. Look at the way his people suffer. But, but Israel knows, they know this is not because our God is pathetic. They know it's, it's not the weakness of God at all. It's because they're unfaithful to God and their idolatry. And so in, in one sense, they want the nations to know that too. They want the nations to know that we, we've been unfaithful. We have been unfaithful. We have worshipped other gods. We have courted sinful ways. That's why it looks like we have no God to you right now, because of our sin, not because of our God. Don't, don't think that way. Even in writing this psalm, they want their sin to be known so that God's name will not be falsely slandered. In another sense, they want God to restore Israel and destroy Babylon. 
right? They mock, they celebrate, they're rejoicing. But he wants them to come back, and he wants them, they want them to do it because they, they want these pagan nations to know that Yahweh, the one true God, is powerful and sovereign and cares for his people. And while Babylon is destroyed eventually, this prayer for, for God's name to be known among the nations is answered long before that, right? Uh, you, you might know the story, right, of the three young Israels, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe you know it for Veggie Tales. If that's the case, forget that one. Um, but, right, they're living in captivity in, in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the same king that brought this destruction on Israel, uh, this destruction in Jerusalem, he sets up this golden statue, and he says, you all have to bow down to it, you all have to worship this statue. And, and these three, three Jew, young Jewish men refuse to do so, and King Nebi threatens them, you know, if you all do not bow down to this, I will cast you into this crazy hot furnace, and you're all going to die, uh, something like that. And, and the young men respond in Daniel 3.16 saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Of course, they are cast into the furnace, uh, and the fire doesn't burn them. God delivers them, and, and this king who previously mocked God shockingly has this to say later. He says, the same guy who destroyed Jerusalem that we're looking at in Psalm 79 says this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. He's glorified. And maybe the most significant way that God delivered his people after the destruction of Jerusalem was not by immediately restoring the temple and immediately restoring the, uh, the city and everything back to grandeur but by renewing and empowering their faith while they lived in a nation just full of idols. They could continue to follow the Lord even in that situation. As, as James Montgomery Boyce has said, it is as great a miracle for God to strengthen his people's faith in the midst of trials as it is to remove the trials altogether. Or more significantly than James Montgomery Boyce, the Apostle John in 1 John 5, 4 says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. In verse 11, the prayer is for God to preserve those Israelites who are prisoners of war. Uh, then the call in verse 12 for God to return the taunts of the ungodly nation sevenfold. Uh, sevenfold is just an idiom. It means complete fool, right? They're saying, God, bring full justice against Babylon. Absolute justice. And, and this brings us to the final verse, verse 13. Um, and and we've got to ask, how did we get from the sorrowful words at the beginning, you know, recounting the, the sacrilege of the temple and the bodies of their loved ones um, thrown in the streets to, to what we read in verse 13. And look at verse 13. Read it as I read it. But, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. This is a, a lament, Right? And they pour out their heart and they're sorrowful and they, they're just miserable for what they're going through. And yet here they come around to this praise of the Lord at the end. And if you were here last week, you know it's, it's similar to what we saw last week. It's a common theme in laments. They, they have turned to God in prayer. That's the process going on. They have remembered what God is like. Who he is. And there's this spark of hope that's been ignited in, in these contrite and downcast people. And, and that spark has, 
has flamed into this roaring fire of of gratitude and praise to their covenant-keeping God. See, they know that despite their unfaithfulness, that God is faithful. And this whole process, God has disciplined them so so they wouldn't continue down that road of idolatry, hopeless idolatry. And God will continue to faithfully love them and call them back and to restore them. But, but, it, but Asaph says here, right? But, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture. Do, do you hear the whisper of Psalm 23 in those words? The Lord is my shepherd. Do you believe that? Can you rest in that? Can you find rest when you just know that the Lord is your shepherd? Because we are by nature and by thoughts and action and everything else sinful people, even unfaithful people, but when the fullness of God's revelation came in human form, in human flesh, when, when Jesus was among us in the flesh, he, he uses this same analogy of a shepherd, right? John ten eleven. he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so then couple of short applications for today. The first one is this. Use this psalm and and others as models for the way you pray. I know sometimes you think, I don't know how to pray. The psalms are beautiful tool for that, right? You go to them, you can pray them word for word, you can think through how they reflect on the way you should pray. Use them as examples for that, right? When when we as God people are attacked physically or socially or whatever, we can ask God to deliver. Use it as a model. Plead for justice. Ask God to glorify his name. Uh, second thing, th- this is the question that I want you to think about because this psalm calls the question. I- in your heart, are-, are you living faithful to the Lord? I-, I just want you to answer that question. Don't go through what that means in the sense of, the, you know, yes, God continues to love you if you're his people, even in your unfaithfulness, but, but ask yourself, in your heart, are you faithful to the Lord? Are- or are there other gods that you have placed before the Lord in your life. And, and I'm just going to leave it like that, just open-ended, and, and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will rightly convict you if, if, if this is true in your life or some area of your life. Just leave it like that. And if, if so, confess that to the Lord. Repent of it. Turn. Seek to do different. God will forgive you. God delights to forgive His people. Finally, Notice the, the commitment of God's covenant people to praise God together corporately. What if as, as a church we made that promise? Right? They, this is them as a congregate, as a people united making that commitment. Can, can you commit to that prayer, God, we your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. Can we do that together? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we we may be tempted to trust in chariots and horses and politicians and policies and the might of our own hands and our, our own rage as we experience suffering as your people, financially, physically, socially, emotionally. Oh, Lord, in the name of, of Jesus, we ask you to build up our faith. Build up our unity, build up our love for you so that we will glorify your name and and build up our love for our brothers and our sisters in Christ and our love for neighbor, even those who may be enemies of your word, of your way, of your glory.
We, we long to see them come to faith. Do this for your name, Lord, and, and do this because we are your people. As Asaph prayed in Psalm 79, so do we this morning, Lord. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Amen.